Bible, I would encourage you to click or turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. We're going through the whole chapter, and we're looking at the message that Paul proclaimed as he went from town to town to town. So, Acts 17, for those of you who are guests, we use a version of the Bible called the ESV. It's a very easy app to find if you want to click there. Uh, download the ESV Bible app, uh, and we'll be in Acts 17. We usually take the Bible and we just walk through it, allowing the Word of God to speak to us, and that way we, we can't avoid what it says because we believe the Bible is God's Word and that He wants to communicate through it to our hearts. So we're just going to walk through Acts 17 some together today, and I wanted to uh, read uh, just a couple of verses to start us off, and then I want to pray, and then we'll dive uh, right in to the Word of God this Easter Sunday morning. Okay? So I feel good that I'm talking to myself. Okay. Here we go. Acts 17, verses 2 through 3 is what I'll read. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. Let me pray. Father, please take your word. Hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. May it be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And may we hide it in our hearts, O oh God. Please teach us that we might love your son. Fill us right now in this moment with the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for all the echoes that we hear or ask that this would characterize our lives until we see you face to face. Save, sustain, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so traditions can be kind of a mixed bag of emotions. Many of us have them, and we have a lot of emotions when it comes to traditions. What I mean by traditions are like, we have traditions around Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's, and Easter, and all throughout the year. We have many traditions that surround these specific holidays. And so with Thanksgiving, we're meant to be what? Thankful, okay, good. This is kind of a response kind of moment here, so feel free to talk. So at Thanksgiving, we're thankful. You know, at Christmas, we're supposed to learn generosity. At the New Year's, we're supposed to learn new beginnings. At Valentine's, we're supposed to express love for those around us. There's kind of these points connected. No matter how secular you are, in their best form, they've got a message that they're trying to teach us. And here's what it's trying to do. It's to help us remember the past in a way that helps frame our future. Remember the past in a way that helps frame our future. Now, I don't know if you know this about Easter, but, you know, where in the world did Easter and eggs kind of get their collision? Well, it actually began as a Christian tradition. It was Christians in the area of Mesopotamia, which is Iran, Iraq, uh, in western Turkey, Syria, in that general region, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, in that general region they would take eggs 
And eggs were traditionally used at the Jewish Passover meal. And they would take eggs in the Jewish Passover meal and they would dip them in salty water and then they would eat them to remind them of the bitter tears that involved their slavery. And the bitter tears that also involved, after the temple was destroyed, the bitter tears that came when the Jewish temple was destroyed. And so it was meant to be a moment that reflected this sense of reflecting on the past and all the pain that was experienced. But Christians took that and said, but oh yes, it's so much more. And these eggs were also meant to be a sign of rebirth. They would literally take them and paint them with red to, dis to describe that the blood of Jesus was what delivered us from that bitter bondage. And they were meant to represent the resurrection. Obviously, we have shifted this in our culture today, but know this. These Easter eggs were meant to remind us of the past so that it would frame our future. It would say something has happened in such a significant way that we are tempted to forget. So we'll take a physical demonstration, an egg, to help remind us of spiritual necessity. And this is what we collide into at this Easter moment. We remember, we love that we might have our future framed by the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is now one of the most famous preachers of, of the Christian era, the Christian age. He is going from town to town, and he has a message, a common message where he is proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what happens. Paul, it says in verse 1 of chapter 17, when they had passed through these two towns, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So as he came to Thessalonica, he had just traveled from Philippi where he had been imprisoned and he travels 94 miles to Thessalonica. He lands in this city and here's what he does. For three Sabbath days, it was a Saturday, it was when the Jews gathered in the temple. For three of those Sabbath days, he gathered and he preached a message. It says this. He explained and he proved that it was necessary that Jesus suffer and that he had to rise from the dead. That's what he did. Common message. That was what he had. That's all he had to give him. Jesus died. He had to die. And he rose from the dead. He did it three weeks in a row. And he was explaining and proving. Let me let you know, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to explain and I'm going to prove it was necessary for Jesus to die and that he rose from the dead. This is a message that we need to rehearse day after day after day, week after week after week, lest we forget, because as we forget, then our future is framed not by hope, but by despair and brokenness and pain. And yet Christians have a different future. They have a different future, one of hope. Now, these words, explain and prove, Explain means to take something that is hidden and make it visible. Something that emotionally, mentally, you cannot process. And yet, by proclaiming this news, it begins, something begins to happen that it becomes visible. It becomes clearer to you. This word prove is a very interesting word. It's taking something and like setting it right in front of you. 
What I thought about was you're sitting at a dinner table and you take it and you're like, you're starving, like you are hungry. And many times at Easter or other holidays, feasts are involved. And so you might even be looking forward to that moment this afternoon. Hopefully your brain doesn't go there too fast. And we can focus here for a second. But as you're sitting there waiting on this meal, imagine just you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then it's set in front of you. What happens when it's in front of you? You smell it. There's this sense of once you begin to partake of it, you taste it, you love what you are experiencing. And Paul is doing this with his words, proclaiming the powerful gospel that changes human hearts. And so I just want you to know, straight up, this is not going to be complicated. This is not going to be original to me. This is a simple message, the same message that Paul preached in the temple. He preached, and I believe it has power. The gospel of Jesus Christ has power to change the human heart. And so my prayer is that this would be like setting a fresh meal in front of you and you have been hungering all of your life. And the prayer is that all of a sudden you would smell what you've never smelled spiritually. You would taste what you've never tasted spiritually and your life would be turned upside down. This is what Paul is doing as he goes from town to town. This is what I am doing. And here's what he says he's going to explain and prove. Verse 3, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And this Christ, that is the Messiah, his name is Jesus. Remember, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but they believed that a Messiah, a Savior, was going to come. They just rejected that it was Jesus. And Paul demanded that it was necessary for Jesus to come, to die in their place, and to rise from the dead. Now, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Paul had to explain. He had to prove that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die. Simple answer, because we are sinners and sin demands a punishment. Sin demands punishment. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition, God mandated that animals had to be slaughtered because sin was so serious. They spilled the blood of thousands and thousands of animals year after year after year to be a physical demonstration that that's how bad sin is. God set it up to where without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Sin had to reflect this gross, detestable practice because sin is a gross, detestable offense against Almighty God. From the beginning, God made it plain that even my sin against my wife or against my children or against any of you, that even though if I sin against you or them, it is not first primarily against you. It is first primarily against God. Because God has told me that I am to live for His glory. He's created me to live for Him and to reflect Him. And I have fallen short of that. I've chosen my own way. And when I do that, I not only hurt those around me, but I have created an infinite offense against an infinite God. And so it demands punishment. It's never simply horizontal. It's deeper than that. I am trusting myself more than him. I'm trying to find my value and worth apart from him and his purposes. I'm living for my own glory rather than his. I'm breaking his commands and following my own ways. 
I'm lusting after things and people more than I am loving Him. Our lives are meant to be wholeheartedly sold out for God. They are meant to be God-oriented. With Him at the center of our thoughts and our ambitions and our loves and our desires. But all humanity, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, until now, everyone without exception is guilty. We've fallen short of that requirement of making God the center of all of our lives and our affections. And as Christians, Tim Keller says, we were purposed to live in certain ways by God. And to violate God's design is to violate our own nature. Sin doesn't just hurt those that we sin against. It's a sin and an offense against God, but it actually is hurting ourselves because our very nature was meant to live for something greater. 
together church planting network. So I preached at one of those churches in Memphis. And my, family, my wife and uh, my daughter, Mercy, got to go with me, and we went to the Civil Rights Museum. And as you're going to the Civil Rights Museum that is housed in the Lorraine Motel, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, you walk through this Civil Rights Museum, and phase after phase, room after room, is just screaming injustice. And you feel it viscerally, from the slave ships, to the Birmingham bus boycott, to the sit-ins, and to how people were treated all throughout our country, there's just this sense of it makes you sick. And then to walk through, because you actually get to look in at the hotel room that he walks out of and see the balcony on which he was shot because he was a black man fighting for equal rights for all people. You feel it. And it's not just a sadness, it's an anger. It's a just anger. But this is not how it's supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to be. Our hearts feel these things. We feel these things when we hear in the news that Asian Americans are being made fun of and told to go back home because they're connected to the COVID virus. That makes us sick and we want justice because that's not how it's supposed to be. It makes us sick when there are rioters in our cities tearing up neighborhood businesses or rioting against the Capitol. It makes you sick because that's not how it's supposed to be. It makes you sick when babies are being killed under the guise of women's rights. That makes you sick. It's called abortion. It makes you sick when in our city there are children and adults being trafficked so that some could make money. Your heart, when you hear these stories, it makes you feel uneasy, and it should. It's called justice. And you got that because you were made in God's image. And when we sin against God... That's what happens. Times 10 billion in the heart of God, it is there must be payment for this sin. So you want to know why Paul would go into a temple among these Jews and he would begin to articulate that it was necessary for Jesus to die? It's because we cannot pay that price. We cannot pay the penalty against an infinite God. We just can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't satisfy the justice that our sin requires. And so what happened? God came to us. Glory of glories. That's what you celebrate at Christmas. Whether you know it or not, Jesus came near. He did not stay away. And he suffered like a criminal, although he was perfect. He died on a Roman cross, although he had no sin to die for. And all of our sins were placed upon his shoulders. And God himself crushed his son, serving the justice that our sin deserved and causing the penalty of our sin to be weighed upon his perfect son. And his son died. And God turned his back upon his son so that if we would trust in Jesus, we would never be alone and forsaken like his son was. That's what sin has to have. It has to have justice paid. But if you trust in Jesus as your substitute, as the one that was necessary for him to die in our place, you can be forgiven and set free. But how do you get freedom? You get freedom because Jesus didn't say death. It was necessary 
for Jesus to die, but it was also necessary for him to rise from the dead. Because what would make him any different than any other good leader if he stays dead? Paul made it really clear. He said, if our Savior is dead, God's word would be broken. Because God had promised that the Messiah would come and not only die, but rise from the dead. So if Jesus didn't die, God can't keep his word and he can't be trusted. If Jesus didn't die, then our greatest enemy, if I'm to ask you what you all are afraid of, ultimately it leads back to some sense that I'm afraid of death. If death, our greatest enemy, cannot be conquered, then our faith is in vain, Paul says. And what we're doing here is a waste of time. It says in the scriptures that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no hope to rise from the dead ourselves. But... Jesus is alive. He's alive. He is risen from the grave. And so I want us to hear this good news. If he did rise from the dead, and he did, God's word can be trusted. If he did rise from the dead, and he did, then our gospel, this news that I'm proclaiming to you, it has supernatural, remarkable power to turn upside down human hearts and also all kinds of neighborhoods and communities. It has that kind of power. Jesus did rise from the dead, so death did not get the final word, friends. And therefore, there's hope. Trying to preach to you a simple message that although sadness plagues this world and brokenness plagues this world and relationships are difficult and we go through suffering, there is hope because none of that gets the final word. The final word is found in trusting in Jesus alone. And if you trust in him after death, you will have eternal life in his presence with him. That is life forever. This is great news. And those who witnessed him eye to eye rise from the dead. They gave their lives for this message. They gave their lives. They worshiped Jesus. They fell at his feet. Because he was not just a man, he was God. Gandhi, he was a man. Muhammad, he was a man. Joseph Smith, he was a man. They're all dead. Jesus is God. He rose from the grave. Over 500 witnesses saw him. And those who knew him the best saw him eat. They talked with him. They saw the nail-pierced hands from the cross. And they gave their lives as martyrs for this very message. That Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And they say, I saw him. This is a fact. And it's a fact that gives hope. Against our sin and in our suffering. But the question I have for you today is, so what? So what? Let me just look at the text with you here. It says, verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying this, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Verse 4. Some were persuaded. When they heard that, their hearts melted. And they loved Jesus. They say, I want to surrender my life to him. I want to give my life to him. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner that caused that death. They were persuaded that they wanted to live their lives for the risen Christ. But then there were others. It says there were Jews who were jealous. And they took other wicked men and they riled up a crowd and they started going after Paul and Timothy and Silas who were also with him. 
Now, here's what's interesting. There's a man in this story. His name is Jason. We don't fully know who this man is, but he is one who was persuaded. One whose life was radically changed. And so what he did was he opened up his house so that those who began to believe in Jesus could begin to gather in a church in his house. Now, you can imagine the Jews didn't like this because that meant they were not going to synagogue and they were coming over here to Jason's house. And so what did they do? According to this text, they would go over to Jason's house and they took him away and they dragged him away, threatening his very life, made him pay a security, a deposit that this won't ever happen again. Paul ended up having to leave because of the attacks of the Jews and he's going to go to another town called Berea. But my question for you is this, what will your response be? Is your response, I love Jesus and I want to live for him? Or is it antagonism? Is it hatred? Is it I'm against these messages? What will your response be? Well, there's also another response that we see as he goes to the town of Berea, about 50 miles away from Thessalonica, there was another response of the people. And I want you to look at that in verse 11. Verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, Paul seems like he's glutton for punishment here, right? Okay, so you just spoke in a temple or a synagogue three times. And now all of a sudden you get kicked out of a town and now you're going to go to a town 50 miles away and do the same thing again? Why would you do that? Because you know you have the answer of eternal life. And so he goes and proclaims again. And there is a different response in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica and they received the word with eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if the things that Paul was saying were really so. And many of them believed, and not just the ignorant poor, and not just Jews, but it says Greeks and even also women of high standing. This is what is beautiful about the gospel. It doesn't pick or choose certain ethnicities that it works on. It's about all people. It's a message that can convert all people, whether you are a high socioeconomic class or low, whether you're in between, no matter your ethnicity, this is a gospel that can change all people's lives. And so, here's another question for you. Your response can be, I'm immediately persuaded. Your response can be, I hate this message and I'm going to run against it. But it can't be indifference. It can't be indifference. This is no big deal. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then what he is saying has massive consequences in your life. There is a judgment to come because of our sin. And there is an eternal life to come only for those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus alone as their only hope against sin. So the question here is, even if you're not sure, might you be like the Bereans who open up the scriptures and seek day after day after day to see what the Bible, God's word, really does say? Because I believe if you do open up God's word, you will begin to see. It will be a witness by the Holy Spirit on those pages because those are living words. Your heart will burn and there will be a sense that what this good news I'm proclaiming and that is in the scriptures is just true. It's just true, and it changes lives. And so, 
Paul them? The very people that were in Thessalonica, they heard that Paul was preaching in Berea, and they came after him again. This is what happens. When people hate the good news of Jesus Christ, because it really does mean that there's a demand on their life, like their lives would have to change. When you hate it, you really hate it. And so they literally wouldn't stay 50 miles away. They traveled 50 miles to Berea to try to kick him out of that town. And so now he goes to Athens. Over 200 miles away, Paul goes, and yet Timothy and Silas, they stay to proclaim the good news in Berea. Now Paul is out by himself in Athens. And while he's in Athens, he looks out, and what he begins to see is tons of idols. People worshiping all kinds of idols. And his heart is stirred. It's provoked. And as his heart is provoked, you might ask, what does that mean? Well, have you ever, like, watched a movie? And as you're watching this movie, all of a sudden, something happens in your heart, and you, like, really start loving this one character. You know, it's just like... I really begin to identify with this. And so all of a sudden there's, there's like love and you get caught up in this moment of like, man, I really want them. I want things to go well for them. And then, you know, when the movie's over, sometimes it's a little jolt of the system because like, oh, wait, I still live in a world where, you know, my kids fight and, you know, marriage is, is hard, but it's, it's good. And, and life is difficult in, in a job or what, you know, you still live in a broken world, right? But that movie took you away for a second and your heart was stirred. It's like, this is good. Well, Paul is looking, and he's seeing out here, and his heart was stirred. Not with a this is good, but my heart is broken that these people need something. And honestly, his heart was stirred, not just for love for these people, but for justice. They are worshiping a false god. It's like we have a vaccine for this COVID thing, and it's like you had them all. All to yourself. Somebody comes to you and just says, can I have a vaccine? And you resist. You say, no. I've got this. Stockpile. You know, just in case you need a lot of them. Millions. Friends, we have a vaccine to the sickness of the human heart. And Paul was so stirred that he had the antidote to the problem of soul sin sickness that he goes out. He didn't stay put. Church, we don't stay put in the midst of a broken world. We step out, even though it might create antagonism, and we speak this message that does call people to change, but it calls people to find what they never could see before. Jesus gives purpose and hope and life and meaning. He loves. He forgives. He doesn't distance in the midst of sin. He comes near. Do you realize, like, Jesus didn't come near because... He only saw the best you. It says that while you were still a sinner, he came near. He knew the worst you, and he came near. And so don't disqualify yourself. Hear this good news. You are an idol worshiper like the people of Athens. Because sin is not just breaking commands. It's loving things more than God. It's an idol of the heart. We can make an idol out of our spouse. We can make an idol out of our kids. We can make an idol out of our job. We can make an idol out of our money, out of our house, out of our car. We make idols all the time, which means we love things more than God. This is what our Savior came to die for. He came to die for the idol. 
lead you his message to this group of people as a means of encouraging us as we conclude. So it says in Acts 17, verse 17 and 18, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout people, and in the market every day with those who happened to be there. Some were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So you could just think, you know, secular humanists, maybe he's walking on like a college campus where they debate philosophical ideas and the enlightenment and humanism. And, and so you just have all these secular worldviews that are floating around and they have a medium where you can go and you can stand and you can just go and debate. So that's what Paul does. But he's going to just speak this message that Christ had to die and that he rose from the dead. And so what does it say? And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They made fun of him. This word babbler, it literally means they called him a chicken, not like scary cat chicken, but like a chicken that goes around and pecks around on pieces of seed and then spits them out. That's what this word babbler means. And he's basically saying, you're just taking ideas and throwing them out and you have no clue what you're saying. You're totally making fun of him. It's like smack talk in the philosophical world, okay? And so... That's what they do to Paul. And what does Paul do? He keeps going. But they made fun of him because he was literally preaching what I'm preaching today. That Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. So it goes on to say, right after they make fun of him, it says this. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that what these things mean. And so, what did they do? Paul, he stands up, verse 22. He says, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Every single person is a religious person. You're putting your trust in something. Whether it's yourself, whether it's your money, whether it's your education, whether it's your, you're putting your trust in something that makes you religious. You're believing something to rescue you and to give you meaning and purpose. So Paul says, I see you're very religious because you've got all these idols out here that you're worshiping. And he says, but I saw one that says to the unknown God. And he says, what you therefore worship as unknown, I'm going to tell you about. And here it is. God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You want to know the major difference between every other religious worldview and the Christian worldview? It is this right here. Every other worldview says God, their God must be served in order to be appeased. Ours says there's no way you can serve our God. He needs nothing. So instead, he served us. He did what we could not do. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. And your only hope is not being good enough. Your only hope is trusting in the goodness of Jesus on your behalf. It's totally upside down. You don't get a verdict of not guilty by being good. You get a verdict of not guilty by trusting in one who is good in your place. It's totally backwards. The way every other worldview works is if you perform well enough, 
then you get a verdict of I will accept you. The way Christianity works is Jesus was the only one that was acceptable. And so you trust in him and you get a verdict of not guilty and he accepts you because you trust in him, not because your performance is something that is stellar. And once he comes and lives inside of you through faith alone, then all of a sudden you begin to love that which you did not love. The things that he loves becomes your loves. Everything is turned upside down. You're made new. And so Paul said, this God, he's not a God served by people. He doesn't need you. He's not lacking in anything. Please don't diminish his greatness. God is not our puppet. He is eternal. He's not controlled by us. He controls. He's not needy. He's all-sufficient. He's not lacking. He has ever-flowing supply. He is not finite. He is infinite. He is not confined to temples or religious buildings, but he is everywhere. And the message here is, do you trust him? Or do you trust yourself? Paul is calling them to reorient their life on who God really is. And it says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This right here is meant to pull the, the rug out from underneath all racial superiority. Because we all come from the same God. We're all made in his image. And our purpose is defined by him, not by our ethnicity. Our ethnicity doesn't exclude us, and our ethnicity doesn't make us more privileged. In the sight of God, we only have hope by trusting in God alone. He is the giver of life. And so he goes on to say, verse 27, or verse 26, Having determined also the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is not actually far from any of them. He is near to each one of us. Every one of us are searching and groping for God, and Paul is just saying, he's not far. He's here. So, dear friends, Paul goes on. And he says, being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being of God is not like gold or silver or stone. He's not an image formed by the art or imagination of man. If he could be formed by us, he could be controlled by us. And that would not make him God, but us God. It says the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands this. And here's the final message. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man jesus christ whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all that this word is true by raising jesus from the dead dear friends the question is how will you respond to this good amazing, remarkable, life-changing news. And I'm speaking both to those who've been Christians all their lives and those who have never surrendered their life to Jesus. What does today look like for you? It's Easter. Today is meant to be a reminder, a resurrection, resurrection message like an Easter egg. And you pick it up and you look at it and it's like, this is meant to remind 
me that I serve a Savior who died in my place and he really is alive. And that reframes my whole future. It reframes my whole trajectory. This past message is about a present Savior who is with us to the end. This message is meant to serve as a moment for you to remind yourself, what am I living for? What is my purpose? Who is my hope? And I just pray you would hear this message. There will come a day. It is fixed by God Almighty when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And if you have not hidden yourself underneath the mercy of God, his love for you, and believe that he died in your place and rose from the dead, then you will experience an eternal judgment. But if you trust in him, you will experience eternal life. There is no other option. There is no purgatory. There is no space in which once you finally realize something after you die, you can kind of get it all right. No, now, today is the day of salvation. What will be your response? Will it be indifference? Will it be antagonism? Is your heart persuaded by this good news? Or will you at least agree to search with eagerness the scriptures day by day? that you might know that Jesus is who he says he is, that he loves you, and he came to die in your place that you might have eternal life. Dear friends, on this Easter Sunday, how will you respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Let me pray for us, and then we will sing a concluding song. In this moment right here, Father, I ask, I ask that you would change hearts. Because if this message is true, it clarifies what our lives are about. It's not about our differences. It's about what is common, and that is the blood of Christ. The world wants us to yell, Father, over our differences and divide. But we want to say we are unified by the blood of Christ. And our differences are meant to just show how beautiful you are to unite people with different music tastes and political opinions and ethnic differences and food differences and leisure differences and clothing differences. All of these differences can be unified under a common allegiance to Jesus. Dead in our place, yet alive on the third day. So, Father, please, unite your church. Cause us to surrender our hearts wholly to you. I pray that we would leave here with a sense of hope and also with a sense of love for one another, for our world that needs to hear this good news. I pray that our feet would be the beautiful feet that brings good news to people who've never heard it. Father, I pray that our mouths would speak not hate, but the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that our actions would reflect compassion and mercy towards others. Father, I pray that we would draw near to Christ.